So about maybe 30 minutes before this, I forgot what topic we were doing and panically pulled up the Google Docs to see if I was supposed to read or watch anything. <laughs> wow. Uh, good student, right? Good good thing. Yeah, you're in, you're in student mode. You don't have to, you didn't have to research any. There was no homework. <laughs> it was exactly that feeling of, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. There's a test today. Yeah. Uh, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> you did all the work, so take me away. All right. We're, today we're going to be talking about worker co-ops. Cool. I know nothing about them, as I said last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I knew a little bit about them and kind of fleshed out my knowledge on it for this episode. So we'll, we can dive right in. Let's do it. All right. So first off, I guess, what is a co-op? What the heck is this thing? <laughs> uh, so a co-op, let's start broadly speaking, is an autonomous association of people united voluntarily to meet their common needs through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. That sounds very nice. Wow, they've used the word or synonyms for autonomous like a lot. <laughs> autonomous, voluntarily, <laughs> yeah. common purpose. Uh, yeah, they're, you know, sure. Yeah, they're... <laughs> they're covering their bases. That's the definition that I found in the International Cooperative Alliance. Mm, okay. Now, that's the overall overarching definition of a co-op. And many of them follow what are called the Rochdale principles. Okay. That might not be the way you say it, but... I didn't really look that up. That comes from this old group called the Rochdale Society of Equitable Pioneers. Ooh, that sounds like some utopia shit. You know, not exactly. They, they weren't, you know, completely utopian. But what they were, they were from Rochdale, England. And they were an early consumer co-op. So think like, you know, like a grocery store style thing, which is, as Americans, I guess, one of the more common That's the one kind of co-op I know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they were instrumental in kind of kicking off the British cooperative movement. They got together. They were like kind of wanting to do a consumer run a grocery. That's what they started with. And they pooled together, you know, enough capital to kind of get that going and then grew from there. Okay. So when you say consumer run, it's just like, man, I hate our grocery store. Let's open our own grocery store. And we, we work together in it. Uh, yeah, kind of. Well, we own, we own it. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about the structure thing here in a bit. But their principles, the Rochdale Society principles, are voluntary and open membership, democratic member control, member economic participation, autonomy and independence, education, training and information, cooperation among cooperatives, and concern for the community. Kind of like a like social, social responsibility. It's like the don't be evil quote that Google uh, took out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really telling. <laughs> so when they say it's like voluntary and open, that means like you don't have to pay to get in or do you have to pay to get in? Uh, you do usually, yeah. You usually have some sort of a, a payment uh, situation. In, in terms of uh, what are called consumer cooperatives, right? That's when we're talking about the grocery store, that's what we're usually meaning. You do have to like purchase a membership. Now it's different if you're, it's a worker co-op because I mean, your, your purchasing is like just showing up Labor? and being a worker. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so here's how, so that's, that's overall being a co-op. All right. But there's different things within that. So, okay. Let's get into that. Cause it seems like that's where I'm jumping to. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, one form is a consumer cooperative, which can be a lot of different things. Anything from power companies to credit unions, uh, housing co-ops to, to grocery or food co-ops. There's all sorts of co-ops within that that are focused on providing for consumers and that consumers are the ones doing that, setting up this institution that serves their interest. With those examples, we can talk about like the power co-ops. Uh, yeah, I, I saw a couple of those. I did some preliminary Googling. It was mostly to help me think of questions to ask. So <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't yeah. look for answers. I looked for questions. Hey, that's that's good. That's uh, <laughs> half the battle was asking the right questions, you know, some research skills. <laughs> yeah. With power cooperatives, consumers or customers, they are members and part owners of a power company and uh, they have equal votes and decide uh, how to run 
the power company. We're not talking day-to-day operations because we're not electricians or, you know, uh, we, we, we don't, we don't know about that. Most people, they're not experts. Yeah. It's just like electing your leadership, electing the people basically to run your company uh, for the benefit of its members. It sounds like almost you're like electing your board of, you know, like your chair people. Uh-huh. Like board of directors. That's the word. Yeah, that's that's kind of what you do. And you, you know, I guess in that way, you have democratic control over it. It started out in the United States anyway. It started out as part of uh, the New Deal. This was where it really gained popularity anyway. There may have been, you know, precursors to that. Uh, but part of the Rural Electrification Administration, where like large parts of the countryside just didn't have electricity at all because you know the investor owned companies the regular companies wouldn't run lines out there because the individual customers were too poor to afford service so by pooling their resources they were able to electrify large parts of the country this is a dumb question does that have anything to do with the tva uh yeah that was that was one that was one part of the larger that was to electrify the tennessee valley yeah okay okay that's the Tennessee Valley Authority. Right, yeah. And that was also just part of, like, I think, wider flood control and all sorts of stuff. Mm, okay. So if they're just, like, the bosses, how do they get the work done? So, I mean, there they are there are regular employees. Like, there's, okay. this is not... We're, with consumer cooperatives, we're not talking about worker control at all. Uh, we're strictly talking about who owns the thing. Like, this... You know, the thing, the power company or the grocery store or whatever can hire workers that have no say whatsoever. I don't know how I feel about it. Right. It's just a type of business ownership is a, is just a plain co-op, a consumer cooperative, you know. Like, what do they do with their profits? Well, they decide. So they decide to plow it back in. They decide to uh, give everybody in, you know, in the power case, a, a rate discount or something. They could just keep it, though, right? Well, they could divide it among members. They can't, you know, I guess they could decide to give it to one person, but no one's going to vote for that. I'm not seeing how this is different than a regular-ass business, except there's more CEOs. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of lots of people. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of correct. It's And it's, uh, I guess, in some ways it is people see it as more socially responsible or at least less of a ripoff because... Everyone who is benefiting from the service of whatever is also not paying extra to get some one person a yacht. Like they're paying less. You're paying less for shit because someone's not ripping you off from it because you're really kind of doing it at cost almost. Yeah. So, okay. Maybe I'm confused a little bit. When you say consumer owned, do you mean all consumers? Like I sign up with this power company and now I own like 2% or whatever? Sure. But it's not 2%. I mean, it's... Very, very, very small. <laughs> okay, so everyone is. Yeah, everyone who is a customer is like a like a part owner, part you know of that cooperative. Mm, okay, I think I was viewing it as just like ten guys like have a local business together. No, no, no. That's just like a large company board. You know, that would just be like a. a no, we're we're saying that everybody receiving power in that cooperative is actually like pooling together their resources to run it like their membership fees and all that, whatever that you would normally pay to a power company just to be there. And they would be like, thanks. We're, you know, pocketing the rest. Uh, <laughs> that is now like purchasing your stake as a voting member of the cooperative. Okay. Now I have more questions. Okay. <laughs> so you, how is that ownership divided up? Is everyone equal or does that depend on the, the company? Uh, it, Depends on the company, I guess. Usually, I think in the case of power companies, it's it's equal in terms of everybody getting to vote uh, for things. Uh, you, there, there's a lot of delegation in that because it's a very expert thing. That's what I was going to ask next is like, how how do they vote on things? Like, how do they know what the fuck they're doing? <laughs> like, yeah. It varies from thing to thing. And it's up to you. It's, it's up to okay. the cooperative. It's, it's up to them, like, how involved you want to get, like, how granular. Yeah, with power companies, like I said, it's an expert thing, so you, you, you delegate most of that. It's just for pulling the resources together. Otherwise, you want to run it like a power company because regular people don't know what to do. 
There's also credit unions. These are member-owned and, and controlled, so they have like a, like a democracy-ish sort of thing. But this is another thing that's pretty delegated because it's banking. Normal, sane people <laughs> don't know much about banking. No, why would you? <laughs> Maybe you know a lot about banking, listener. That's okay. Sorry to <laughs> judge. Wizard. Yeah. Credit unions are not-for-profit. Not-for-profit just means its purpose is to serve its members rather than having to be like maximizing profits. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Again, doesn't really, it's not talking about worker control or anything like that. Uh, It's just saying like, we're trying to mainly provide this service. You know, we're not going to be trying to like hit a big return for investors or anything like that. It's different than a nonprofit because that's specifically saying we're trying to do a social good, like provide for others. And a not-for-profit could be not really focused on the wider community, but focused on the needs of the members. Let's make sure we have like our, our gym is working right for us, but you're not like trying to make sure that, you know, the local kids have a place to get fit or something. I feel like that could be a spectrum though. Cause like you could still be like, well, I made some profit like accidentally. Oh yeah. (laughs) And you have to make a profit to continue to be a going concern. Uh, The thing is that that's not your main goal and your profit is not going to really just be, blown on stuff it's either going to be given to members or more often put back into improvements and and things like that okay gotcha so credit unions it's kind of financial version of a consumer cooperative you also have housing co-ops this is also a form of of consumer cooperatives as well there's a lot of different forms of this and this got confusing to me uh, (laughs) because it had to do with like legal ownership and but the basic idea Uh, is that people own a part of a corporation that owns like housing units, apartment blocks, and sometimes multiple ones. And in owning a part of that, you have the right to occupy one housing unit of that corporation. So one apartment, a lot of times, that's kind of like a lease arrangement. It's because it's kind of like renting. I mean, you, you are going to like pay a rent basically to continue to have the right to occupy that and continue to have your membership. Uh, but it is, it does seem to be cheaper given, you know, within the housing market that it's in, like a lot of these (laughs) in New York, so they're not cheap, but like it's cheaper because the co-op isn't trying to like get an extra. They're trying to fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) They're, you know, the money that they do get, the profits that they get Mm -hmm. are, are not like geared to be excessive. They're geared to like build up a fund that is used for the building. And the members decide on like how to do that. The smaller the scale, it seems to be the more like directly involved you are. Members can like serve on committees and stuff to like manage the building, uh, manage their building and, and decide who joins the cooperative and all that. All right. I mean, that doesn't sound bad. Like, so you're still paying rent. You're not, you don't. You don't own the the apartment you live in. It's not like no. you bought, bought a condo. Right. It is different from a condo because a condo, you specifically own like this. That unit. unit. Whereas the co-op, you own just like a, like a thing on paper that says, I have the right to live in a place and they're not going to kick you out of that like unit or anything, but you don't own that unit. That's not bad. I don't hate it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about all of these kind of is like, they're nice. They sound okay. That's I'm not opposed to people doing that. Yeah, it's not a systemic change sort of thing, but like... No, but it sounds like a nicer way to consume, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Like, if you could do that, that's probably nice. I think, I think my issue with both this and the consumer one is that, like, in order to do that, you have to have enough income to be able to afford to raise that initial capital and to buy into these kinds of mm-hmm. communities. Yeah, yeah, so. you do. Housing co-ops, depending where you are, do get government um, subsidies and have been used and continue to be used in different places. I was watching this video about uh, housing co-ops in Canada, in Quebec specifically, mm. and they were saying how it was used as kind of low-income housing, like a, a way to essentially <laughs> kind of uh, kind of bring in, you know, lefty idealist types that want to do something for the community and do this mm-hmm. kind of co-op housing thing. And using them as like a social service and saying, here's some government money, run your co-op thing, make it low income. That's not bad. And the other one that we've alluded to already is uh, grocery stores, uh, food co-ops. It's one of the earliest forms of cooperatives. It's just like a grocery store. I mean, it is, you know, that's what it is. (laughs) It is one. 
Uh, it's selling groceries for a profit to the general public. Uh, but instead of being owned by a corporation, by your group of one or two or 24, it's jointly owned, democratically controlled by a way wider membership. It doesn't have to be worker run. It can also be worker run, but that's a separate thing. The members, whoever buys a, a membership to be one of the co-op members, decide how to run it, decide what to do with the profits. And it encourages, you know, it's open to the public. It does want non-members to shop there as well. Cause that's like just straight money for them, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was my question too, is if you had to be a member to shop there. No, not at all. Cause like members typically get like a discounted price. So you definitely want, you know, cause non-members to, to shop there and, and pad your, pad your numbers. But yeah, those are your consumer co-ops. All right, let's move on to the other ones. All right. The better one, the better <laughs> category that we're talking about here is a worker co-op. All right. That sounds good. So a worker co-op, you take that cooperative thing, right? But this one is self-managed by its workers. All right. So its workers are in some way, and it's kind of up to them, but it's in some way they are in control of their workplace directly or indirectly. You can do worker co-ops in lots of different fields, sort of within reason. There's limitations that we'll talk about, but you know, you can have worker co-ops that are restaurants, breweries, grocery stores, manufacturing. I mean, lots of different things. Dang, okay. Not everything, but lots of different things. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like a pure, I don't know, like a Soviet, is it? I mean, could you put set one up to be basically that? Yeah, you could do that. And, and we're referring to Soviet in terms of like the literal translation of a worker-run operation and not like Soviet Russia. Right. Yeah, a workers' council, complete worker control of the workplace. I mean, it can be... It can be directly democratically run that way. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we could technically start a Soviet. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess most people don't <laughs> take that naming route. <laughs> don't take the fun away from me. <laughs> Let me dream. But yes, you could do that if you wanted. <laughs> we could start a podcast one where like we all pool together. So our hosting fees are less. This could happen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's talk about kind of how this would work. Because you probably have a lot of questions about the... I do. <laughs> about the functioning of, of such a structure. <laughs> yes, it sounds difficult. First review. First review. Sounds difficult. Um, what do you mean? In terms of setting one up or... Yeah. So one question I had, I think really both with both of these things, is that I imagine the American legal system at least is probably annoying to set up like multiple owners of things. Like I understand that like companies have conglomerates and stuff like that, but like, I wonder how that translates to like, like a smaller level. Does that make sense? It does depend on where you are uh, worldwide and within the United States as to how you would set up your co-op in terms of legal stuff, mm -hmm. legal paperwork, boring shit like that. Again, the, the lawyers in the audience are like, what? Come on. <laughs> it's my favorite shit. <laughs> And that's okay. You do you. <laughs> yeah. We have to have someone that's into that or, you know, we wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like different countries, you know, do provide loans or otherwise assist worker cooperatives, like help you set it up in within the United States. There are like organizations that can help out in terms of putting it together. And we can put some links in the show note because I was pretty confused about all this. But uh, basically, there's not a lot of regulations in the U.S., um, in terms of how specifically to do worker co-ops, like in terms of legal structure, the main thing would be to get certain paperwork right for like taxes and stuff. Cause you, you might get like tax breaks on certain things. Generally though, it's like kind of putting together a business. Basically you in most places rely on the same types of corporation structures like LLCs think, you know, those sorts of things, you know, regular corporations. Because if, if, if your state doesn't have like specific laws about, oh, if you're setting up a co-op, here's how, which is not very many states. This is a dumb metaphor, maybe, but like to me, it made me think of like how in the United States, it's very difficult to set up legal protections for like, if you like are not married, but you still want someone as like your, like, uh, what's it called? Beneficiary, things like that, or, you know, to, to 
be on your taxes or healthcare or whatever it is. Or, you know, the other side of that, if you like are polyamorous or something and you like want to legally provide for multiple people, like our system is set up in a very like, you own this, it's you, or you and your spouse own this, it's you two, that's it. (laughs) So regular corporations are like the normal married couples doing taxes and then everyone else is in all the other situations that regular humans find themselves in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I, that was my imagination with it. Like I understand that corporations can and do have multiple owners, but I, I still view it as a very hierarchical thing where like at the end of the day, it all trickles back to like one big holding corporation. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And any corporate (laughs) lawyer can tell you it's way more complicated than that. I'm sure it is. (laughs) Go read corporate law if you want more break, more of a breakdown, but we don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. So it's as hard to set up as it is to set up a business, basically, is what I mean. Okay. I guess we can get into kind of how it works. How does it work? What's the big idea here? So one big question would be, okay, we've got a worker co-op. Are we still like making money? You know, or, yeah, what's the profit deal? Uh, yeah, you're still making profit. If we're talking about a worker co-op, especially in the United States, but in any place where you're doing capitalism, <laughs> then yeah, uh, you're still working to produce a profit. And that's your main goal, you know, but those profits that are made are used to either, you know, expand the cooperative in some way or distributed however the worker owners see fit. Okay, but kind of like we mentioned in the first setup of the consumer one, you're not willing to like fuck people over for that to the extent that regular places are because the people you are fucking over are the people you are like owning this with. Like no one's going to vote like, yeah, fuck the workers when like you are the workers. <laughs> yeah, you would you would see less of a willingness to, yeah, like you said, fuck over people with wages. All right. And that's a big way you get profit is from paying people less than what they're worth. So you're probably going to be making less profit because of that. There's no incentive to like, I don't know, provide ridiculous deals or whatever to your customer. I mean, you still want to like get as much money from them as you can. That sounds hard. From your, I mean like, yeah, but that's what businesses do, right? They try to. No, no. I mean, I guess what I mean is it sounds hard because usually what happens is you fuck over workers so you can like provide, you know, discounts to your customers and, you know, make things cheaper, sell them for cheaper, get Mm. more volume, things like that. And you're just kind of throwing that whole equation out the window, or at least you're not throwing it out. You're making it um, the margins way smaller to the extent that you can. Yeah. That's one big drawback (laughs) to worker cooperatives is they still operate in a capitalist market. They're not changing the rules of the game. They're just changing the rules that they're following. At the end of the day, there's only so much you can do in terms of being fair to your membership slash workers. So let me ask, um, and I'm sure this varies from place to place, but like, is does everyone have like equal say in this or is it like structured in any certain way? Like I could see a scenario where if they still have to make profit, like they could still potentially cut someone's wages if like someone had enough votes or something, you know what I mean? You, you're correct in that it can vary from place to place with one, you know, one worker, one vote sort of thing. I mean, with most organizations, you're going to have more of the lower paid, the people further down the total, you're gonna have more of them. So they're typically not going to vote um, against themselves. (laughs) Okay. I mean, that sounds good. That sounds like kind of a built in protection. Yeah. And according to kind of the stats, worker cooperatives do have more equitable pay uh, and measured like, you know, top pay versus bottom pay, like ratio sort of thing. Theirs is better than the way better, you know, than the average companies or privately held companies, whatever, not worker controlled companies. Uh, So they have less disparity there. They tend to have more like job security and things like that as well. That sounds pretty good. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Are there any drawbacks? There are. uh, For one, setting up a business requires capital. So it's kind of hard to get started. Uh, Minimum wage workers can't, you know, the whole staff of McDonald's can't get pissed one day and walk off the job. Let's go start it. Start a, yeah, and start start their own co-op where they sell, you know, better food and work together. They don't have the money. I mean, like no one's going to loan them the money. It's limited in terms of who can start co-ops just the same way as businesses are. 
because people just aren't sitting on regular people just aren't sitting on tons of money to start a business like that. Yeah. And and that plays into the generational wealth gap that plays into like the racial wealth gap and just like the kinds of people who have that kind of money laying around are like, that's a different kind of people. (laughs) Yes. And it also, you know, to take a a bigger look at things, it, it depends on if you're in one of the Imperial core countries or not like, you know, uh, you, you have even less capital sitting around if you're, you know, regularly at the, at the wrong end of, of capital's gun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're in a, a super war torn area, like that ain't happening. Yeah. So even with it, even here, you know, amongst the people who are more likely to be able to start it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Like credit scores, getting a loan, mm-hmm. all that shit is just, no, that is not accessible to a lot of people. Yeah. So that's one drawback is simply getting started. Um, even once you're started, you kind of have less capital access. You don't have like a few rich guys you can go knock over, basically milk for more money. So you, it's harder to expand. Well, that's the thing. I, I think what is kind of shocking to like a lot of people and like something I've learned over the years is is how much money businesses just burn, especially in the beginning, especially tech businesses. They're just like, like Uber is still not making a profit. Yeah. (laughs) But that's, that's sort of the name of the game with, with tech startups (laughs) is just like, go rob venture capitalists. Like it's, you know, a fool in their money sort of thing is just convince someone that, Hey, I found a tech way to like rip off labor more, Uh, (laughs) but it's an app. So I need, you know, $30 million. Yeah, it's going to take like 10 years to maybe turn a profit. And even then, I don't know. <laughs> it It is very wild to me. That, yeah, it is. It's like gambling. And that kind of gambling requires a level of trust that is based on like whiteness and like your class and your education and like all these things. Like it, it's, it's just hobnobbing at the end of the day. Well, it's yeah, it's hobnobbing. It's people that have just insane too much amount, too much money that are looking for ways to kind of, you know, ways to launder that money or to, you know, <laughs> shield that money from, for tax purposes. There's all sorts of, all sorts of shenanigans that are going on. Like celebrity too, of like, oh, I want to be seen as an innovator. You know, I'll just dump a bunch of money on this thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, it's also just a con game. I mean, the the, the tech startups <laughs> are, are that is that is a house of cards. <laughs> it's ridiculous, yep. but yeah. So back to the back to the worker co-ops. Uh, some other drawbacks is like we mentioned before, you can't get too nice. You're constrained by the overall capital system. You, you're, you're still in competition and you'll get buried if you try to do too much in terms of treating yourself correctly, you know, treating yourself right as a worker and saying like, <laughs> we have the right to blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, okay, that's great, but your business might fail because of that. I, I would imagine that a lot of these co-ops are pretty small. So I bet it's really difficult to advocate for things like, you know, we want a four hour workday or something because like, there's just, you can't do that. <laughs> like, I think one of the key concepts of texts like Conquest for Bread or general, like Marxist-Leninism even, is that you you have enough people, you have the masses working towards this singular goal of providing for people that it becomes an easier task. And you don't have that in this isolated system. Right. Yes. Uh, economies of scale, you might say. Uh, yeah, that's the word. <laughs> but yeah, like doing the one-man show... You know, just this one little corner bakery that's a that's a worker co-op. Yeah, they I mean they you essentially have to play by the rules of the game to get by because there aren't enough of you to change it. You know? Yeah, and you're still beholden to capitalism's other demands like paying rent and healthcare and like all this expensive stuff. So like you can't you can't rely on the rest of society to support you. Right. Yeah, that's another drawback. I guess a less I don't know. A, a drawback that I that doesn't apply to me anyway. But like there are people <laughs> out there who are, you know, real go-getters, real kind of extra hours, hot shot, sales quota exceeding <laughs> kind of climbing the corporate ladder type people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we all have our vices, you know, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> I'll still judge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you probably wouldn't want to be in a, in a worker co-op in that situation. <laughs> place for you yeah there's less of a ladder to climb you know less excess bonus pay that sort of thing so it's not for everyone (laughs) 
I think, though, there's a difference between someone who is ambitious in that, like, very materialistic sense and someone who just genuinely enjoys leading things, like, who Mm. just enjoys being that kind of organizational person or that kind of, like, top-level view. You just meet people who are like, no, that's my favorite thing to do. And, yeah, it can come across as, like, uh, ambitious or something or, like, or corporate climbing or whatever. But, like, some people are just good at that. Yeah, (laughs) they have a vision and they know how to work with people and aim people at helping themselves even, you know, it doesn't have to be for their own ambition or, yeah, you're right, you're right. I think it's possible to like be really good at that and also like not care about yourself and and, and just be like, no, I just want us to do a good job. Cause like in this kind of organization where it is so like flat, you kind of still need someone to be like, here's what I think we should do. Cause otherwise you're just going to be like all sitting around looking at each other <laughs> <laughs> and you still vote on what you want to do probably. But like, it, it, I think it would be good to have a mix of personalities in there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Like, how do they, you know, who's in charge or what they do, right? Yeah. All right. So the hierarchy is up to the workers of the co-op. It can be anything from very horizontal, very flat, you know, anarchistic. I mean, or it can be very formal, very hierarchical, businessy, you know, titles and stuff. So are you saying they could still have like one guy in charge if they wanted to? I mean, they would elect him, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's very much up to the situation you're in. Like we mentioned, our corner bakery with like three workers. You know, you don't need to figure out who's vice president of personnel there. You know, <laughs> I get to be treasurer. Yeah, like okay, but you're also the janitor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> great, go you know. clean the toilets. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you don't need a lot of structure with that. But I mean, you do want some organization. Some decision-making process uh, with, a you know, if you get to a larger enterprise sort of, sort of scale. So it depends. And it's up to, I mean, at some point you do have to like meet to figure that out, right? <laughs> you have to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people sometimes have the concern of this being annoying. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like a lot of work, a lot of meetings that I just... I would normally zone out on these meetings, but I think I'd have to pay attention. <laughs> well, that's the thing is you can, uh, you would have to pay attention to the first meeting. First meeting where you okay. sit down and, and say, okay, what are we going to do? You know, uh, are we going to have, are we going to like just make this someone else's problem? Have like a small committee, you know, the central committee maybe making the decisions. Are we going to all sit down all the time and make all the decisions? Are we going to, you know, what are we going to do? So you probably have to pay attention to that meeting. Yeah, because you could structure it as like, you know, super flat, everyone votes on everything. But like, that just seems like a bad idea. <laughs> because like, that sounds, that sounds so difficult, unless it's a small enough operation that that makes sense. But like, do you think, do a lot of these places kind of turn into almost like a republic of like, all right, we'll have committees for different things. And like, they'll kind of represent the general good. And, you know, you can vote them out if they do a bad job. Yeah, certainly at scale, they do. You know, if, if you're, if you're looking at larger operations yeah they definitely get into kind of a bureaucracy like that of an elected leadership that also is not just in terms of size but in terms of whatever you're doing the the degree of technical expertise it requires like we were mentioning with the with the power i know that's not a worker call but still like with something that would require technical expertise you don't you know you don't need the (laughs) input of everyone for everything yeah, like how should we optimize our, I don't even, I can't even come up with a good techno babble sentence for, for an electric company. I was going to be like, outlets? How can we optimize our outlets? There you go. <laughs> so yeah, you can, you can elect people to be in charge to a degree. It depends on your outfit, whether it's like, okay, they're in charge for this term, or maybe you set it up to where it's like, they can be recalled if they're an asshole, you know, like. You can recall them immediately, whatever. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. So it's a spectrum between completely, you know, complete anarchy kind of. And I mean, you can, you know, get to basically just be a company, but you vote. How common are these kinds of businesses, at least in the United States? I don't know if you have any numbers for me. I do. Um, Ooh. So I don't have global numbers. I couldn't find specific numbers on it. Listeners, send us your numbers. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more worker co-ops around the world than there are in the United States. There are not very many in the United States. 
the latest numbers I could find are from 2019. And we were at 465 worker cooperatives uh, with around 6,400 workers. That's like nothing. Now, there were some requirements in terms of like, you know, these were the ones that they were confirming. And they had like three or more worker owners. At least 50% of the workers there were worker owners. And they had been in operation for a year. So the people who put that together, Democracy at Work, estimated that the real number, if you don't put all those constraints in, maybe they didn't reach out to these guys, you know, someone fell through the cracks or whatever, maybe the real number is closer to around 800 worker cooperatives. Okay. Which is still not that much. It's not. (laughs) Do you have any examples? Like, did you find any that, like, seem to be really cool or, like, I don't know. I guess ultimately I'm trying to figure out how I feel about all of these various means to provide for people and stuff while still in a capitalist system. Like I think it's better than like a giant corporation for sure. Yeah. But I'm just curious about like how, how, how are they doing? Well, one very prominent uh, worker cooperative, well, it's actually a federation of worker cooperatives uh, is in Spain. Uh, it's called the Mondragon Corporation. This is, you know, this is one of those things you hear about in leftist circles and whatever. They're interesting. They employ lots of people uh, around 81,000 oh, wow. people. They have 257 companies or, or more. Maybe that was a, a little while ago. And they do all sorts of things in terms of production. Uh, they have like a finance department. Like uh, they have like an insurance company. Uh, they do banking. Uh, they produce consumer goods as well as like industrial components and stuff for like construction stuff. So like they're kind of all over. They have retail. Uh, they run like a university. Whoa. Uh, yeah. So lots of stuff. Like how the fuck do you have a, a leftist banking corporation? Like what? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not super leftist. So it's, you know, worker, it's, it's a worker co-op. It's, it's worker uh, owned it. However, is especially as it's, as it's grown so much, it is completely, you know, within a capital system, you know, and again, it runs into those problems of it can't just, you know, run a completely egalitarian uh, system or anything like that. Yeah. Cause then it wouldn't exist or be growing. Yeah, and it doesn't even really have like super leftist roots. It was originally founded by a Catholic priest. Okay. <laughs> you know, he was wanting to implement Catholic social teaching of like providing for the poor and, and solidarity and things like that. Uh, but he was not like about the class struggle. You know, he, he did not want to do anything, you know, any <laughs> real like syndicalism or stuff like that. Just kind of like making a nice little... A nice little patch of the economy for people to not suffer as much, I guess. (laughs) So I've sometimes seen things say they're employee-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. Is that that's probably not the same thing as like a worker-run business? Like, is that like just a majority shareholder thing? Or yeah, it's a different thing. So oftentimes, this is referring to an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, Uh, and that's where like you have a trust that owns some or all of the company's stock and holds it for the benefit of the employees, like retirement or like a cash payout when you leave, something like that. Oh, it's just profit sharing. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, but it's, but it's like, you know, a big chunk, you know, it's not like a little, a little dinky thing. Um, sometimes <laughs> it's a hundred percent. Sometimes it's not. There is no requirement of worker control in that. Uh, no democratic element. It, I mean, it does sound like, like a nice benefit, I guess, but it's not, it, do, it's, it doesn't seem like it has any of that, you know, Soviet worker council. They could just take it away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, what do we think? Are, are we at that point where we can give reviews? I kind of want to talk about that. Yeah. I think that's the meat of the discussion now that we know what it is. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I wanted to bring up is I feel like we get this question a lot. I've pulled up a few different emails just in the time we've been talking about people wanting to start a business, but not wanting to be a dick. And I often, I'm like, I don't know how to tell you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. I I just don't know if you can do that right now. (laughs) I think you can, maybe. There there may be a way, right? They're, They're wanting to find a way to survive in capitalism. And there are precious few ways to do that sinlessly. 
right? We're, yeah. we're all going to dirty ourselves one way or another in the system we have, as, as bleak as that is maybe to say, it's, you got to, you got to do something to get by until we manage to, you know, rest control for ourselves. Yeah, I, I think that's my main issue with both of these systems of co-ops in general. Like, because they're both still in a capital system, like like we've been saying, like they're still going to have to fight for a profit. They're still going to have to cut corners. They're still, it's not enough. And like, I think it's fine. Like, if you're in a situation where like you have the the capital available to set this up, and you like are willing to put in that work and all that, sure. But I just don't think it's a viable option for a lot of people. And I think that it's not it's not the solution. It's just like a stopgap. Yeah, I tend to agree. I don't oppose it as like it's bad or making the situation worse in any way. No, not at all. If you do want to start a business because, you know, you do have to get by and you're looking for a way to do that less shittily. Then I guess, you know, setting up a worker cooperative, especially a small scale horizontal one, would minimize your negative impacts on others, I would say. Right? Harm reduction. Yeah. You're still going to be relying on a global supply chain. So I think we should keep in mind that, you know, when we're talking about this and especially for an American or, you know, other imperial core country, we are talking about still relying on the exploitation of the global south to get everything that we're producing so there's a you know you can't you're not going to and that's a big fallacy people have is like i want to live my life in a pure way i want to you know take away the bad things of my life that and thinking that this isn't somehow going to that this is in some way gonna change the global scene it may help you feel better about what you are doing and that's Mm -hmm. fine if it does that's you know everyone needs to do that's still good. Yeah. Uh, please do things that make you feel better, but it's don't feel discouraged when it doesn't, you know, change the broader system because it can't. I think it's, it reminds me a lot of our conversations before on like ethical consumption and like small businesses. Like it's that same issue of like, I understand where you're coming from of wanting things to be more local and more like quote unquote fair, things like that. But like, this isn't, this isn't actually the way to do it. And it's very frustrating because like we get a lot of emails from people who, who still want to do those things like in the immediate meantime. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like follow your dreams, whatever, like do what you got to do. Eh, the landlord ones, like we've gotten some from landlords where I'm like, I don't know how to tell you to do that one for sure. Like, uh, that's, that's rough. Um, <laughs> yeah. Don't be a landlord at all. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any advice for y'all. Just don't. That's my advice. If you really have to get into the housing market, then find a way to like do a, housing co-op i suppose that's like the best case that you can do in that if you're just like obsessed with (laughs) dealing with property ownership and stuff like that yeah (laughs) then then you have to do something you you cannot be a i mean being a landlord is bad landlord yeah Yeah. no ethical way to do it i think that's the big struggle people are having with with all of these issues with with consumerism with having businesses with being a landlord is they are focused on reducing the harm in it without seeing what the real cause is of it. It's like, Oh, well I'll just shop better. Oh, I'll just, you know, try to be a nice owner. And Mm -hmm. it's like being the concept of owners is the problem, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, mischaracterize people. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who do realize the problem anyway, you know, but still want to minimize their impact. Like, Yeah, no, definitely. I just, you know, for those people out there that are looking for a way forward, I don't want them to think that this is what will change things, you know? (laughs) Like, it's not. Yeah, like this, again, this is a good stop measure. Like, if you have the ability to set these things up, they sound sound better than the other option, you know, lesser of two evil situation. But I I think people get really hyper-focused on those as the solution, as the, you know, the ethical thing to do. To the point where it's like, well, maybe we should be spending more energy on like the actual solution, you know? For sure. We need to, <laughs> yeah, we need to be organizing and, and finding a way to take over this thing because we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you get a lot of pushback because in our culture, like owning a small business or, or something like that is seen as such a, an obviously good thing. You know, you get a lot of pushback whenever people try to say, like, well, business owners fucking suck. They should pay their workers more, blah, blah, blah. What about small businesses? 
Exactly. That is the first thing people do. <laughs> See our episode on that for more. But, uh, <laughs> but, and it's very hard just to like look at somebody and be like, hey, I'm sorry, but like your dream involves exploiting people. Like, I don't know how to tell you that in a, in a nice way, but like, that's just the reality of it. Like you, if you can't afford to pay your workers, you're, you're, that's not cool. <laughs> You don't get to have a business if you can't afford things. Well, yeah. And the, well, the problem in our system is you do, you know, you do get to still have a business if you, if you can't afford that. Budgets for poor people, but not for rich people. <laughs> <laughs> don't buy your latte, but do hire people <laughs> and pay them badly. It's wild. And and that system is never going to be solved by by just co-ops and by just trying to be more more ethical in an inherently unethical system like you you have to you have to throw out the whole man as they say <laughs> yeah and furthermore there's just uh like mechanical problems to mm-hmm. to seeing worker co-ops as like the way forward eventually we'll have everything be a worker co-op and there we go right one thing i was doing some reading on on kind of you know what do the old wise people say about this <laughs> One critique of this was from Rosa Luxemburg. Oh, I've heard of her. Yeah, she was a socialist uh, from Poland and was very involved in all the kind of social democratic parties and everything that were going on at the time. And she, you know, spoke to Lenin and was in that whole milieu uh, and was criticizing some of the reformists. You know, her and Lenin were over there saying, fuck these reformist guys. And, uh, <laughs> wrote this book called Reform or Revolution, more of a pamphlet thing. But she was talking about this guy, Edward Bernstein, who was all about worker co-ops. And he's like, this, this is the way to do it. We're going to have cooperatives and we're going to peacefully transition from capitalism to socialism through labor unions and worker cooperatives. And she said, okay, so think about it this way. Let's just use some logic. She said, like <laughs> they have to compete within capitalism so they're going to have to resort to more and more exploitative means against themselves. They're just going to have to put themselves in, in the grinder or cease to exist, right? Or, well, let's say they don't want to do that because, duh, they can try to find a guaranteed market for their goods. Somebody who will buy from them because they're like their worker co-op. Uh, well, she said you can find that in a consumer cooperative like we were talking about, right? They, uh, they have an old storied history, too, and they were around at that time. So basically, you would have the productive cooperatives, the worker co-ops, team up with the consumer co-ops, and there you go. But the limitation to that is that that only works for producing things that consumers are going to be buying, that consumers need, finished consumer goods. Oh, okay. So, um, you know groceries but you can yeah whatever yeah things that consumers are going to buy directly but like higher up the production chain oil mining textiles heavy industry you won't end up with any democratic worker co-ops or anything like that because you don't have any regular people uh to consume those in in co-ops like they don't buy crude oil that's oil tycoons (laughs) who want like private profits they're not interested in buying from a worker co-op yeah so like more complicated manufacturing, probably like infrastructure, mm-hmm. like things that require more, more legwork, I guess. Yeah. So they can't really do the general social transformation of everything becomes a co-op because they're constrained to certain sectors of the economy. So at one point, even if you got as far as you could with those, you'd probably still have to violently take away those other industries because they ain't going to be like, oh, you know what? You're right. Yeah, that's another thing is, is, I mean, imagine a complete universal conversion to worker control of, I mean, I mean like, in what world? I just imagine this is a completely different scenario, like the, the, the Bezoses and the, and the Musks of the world, right? The extractive titans, um, the defense industry. <laughs> Oof, yeah. These guys are all just like caving to the will of the people uh, all those small business tyrants the jet ski dealers and everything like <laughs> they're just going to be like oh yeah you're right all power to the working class i just it just doesn't seem possible like even in the past when we've talked about like kind of the maybe this is it the syndicalist ones that wants the union of unions mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. like that yeah yeah they're still going to run into that same problem like how are you going to 
make that happen for honestly i feel like imperialism's gonna be a big oh, issue oh, yeah. like <laughs> you know like you said defense contracts i'm like yeah they're they're not just gonna be like it's cool i'm, I'm done blowing people up it's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let the people decide what we should produce it's probably more laser guided missiles right <laughs> Here's my co-op. We build fucking missiles and landmines. Yeah, we and all decide how many aircraft carriers to build this year. Oh, God. <laughs> that sort of a wholesale conversion would see us basically moving past capitalism, which, I mean, okay, like, it's theoretically possible. Like, imagine, okay, we got tons of crises facing us. The, the climate, obviously, you know, more frequent market crashes, the fundamental contradictions of capitalism, the overextended supply chain is just, you know, a symptom of that, really. Those could end up being existential. You know, one of them will be an existential crisis, <laughs> uh, but they could all combine, you know, this could theoretically make the ruling class scared enough to say, okay, you know, we do want to survive physically. So, yeah, you know, we'll throw in with the masses. That's the thing. We got to have that component of fear, though, and that requires mass action. They're not going to be scared if we're all just like, it's cool, take your time. Like, we have to be out there, like, demanding it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even so, I mean, like, I think even with that mass action, that's going to not result in them saying, okay, fine, you guys take over. Yeah, I really doubt that's going to be a peaceful transition because these motherfuckers have been, like, hoarding all kinds of private security and, like, the government on their side. Like, uh-huh. there's just, you can't vote out tyrants. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's not, that's not the how tyrants work. That's just not in the definition. Yeah, I think it could very well just provoke them into fascism. Like, you know, it's just capitalism backed into a corner fighting for its survival. They would probably do that, I would think. They would say instead of, Oh, let's just side with the masses and everybody be equal. They're going to keep their perch let's atop just do everyone. Do a violent takeover yeah. on our end. Yeah, and they're just going <laughs> to yeah, they're just going to stomp us down, you know. And and honestly, any signs that the cooperative movement because it's 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 alive and it's legal and it's not, you know, being attacked by anyone by any <laughs> by any of these imperial countries because it like doesn't really threaten the system. I think that if it came close to it, they would be, you know, because we 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 see when they when they feel like they're threatened when they like unions yeah like unions yeah <laughs> yeah uh, when they break up <laughs> the uh, anti-union thugs against striking workers and whatnot right when they are targeting existing socialist states like Cuba and posturing and everything trying to pick a new cold war and stuff like that anytime they think there's a threat you know or think about uh, revolutionary groups that that they've crushed like the Black Panthers. You know, anytime they think there's a threat, they have a good way of, of and by good, we mean completely ruthless way of dealing with that. <laughs> Efficient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to sit around and wait for that to, like, get to be a mass enough force that they have to deal with it. They're going to crush it. Right. So that's, I mean, it's pessimistic. Oh, we but sound like downers. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just, that's one reason why I don't think that it's a big threat to the system is because it's so allowed. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, it's fine. I think it fundamentally comes back to something that we've we've said many, many times on this is that like, yeah, it's good and you should do it for now, Yeah, but it should not distract us from our larger goal. Mm -hmm. So like it's, it's the classic do both. Yeah, that's true. And that's one big thing about organizing and about the political struggle. The reason why, you, you know, going back to what Daniel DeLeon said about doing both is that you want to build that political power, right? To be able to try to you know take leadership when the time comes you want to build the mass action of of people and, and, and union activism so that workers are able to take control of the economy too and so they have like a threat to power like on the ground you know they have the masses to scare the people in power into giving up i mean like those two are intertwined is what i'm saying right yeah and i think you know, one way in which I think these are very useful to the broader causes, these make for great examples. So it, it's a concrete example of something threat or not thriving, but, you know, making it work in this system. So for people who have a very hard time picturing, like, you know, we get a lot of questions about, okay, how would this kind of business work? Like, how, how would this work? This could be kind of examples like, well, it's not exactly like this, but like, see how they are, you know, dividing up responsibilities and democracy and things like that. Like, this could prove as a method to 
comfort people who aren't willing to let go of like a standard business organization and who are like, well, we're all just going to kill each other. Right. And <laughs> you're like, look, no, that's not necessarily the case. Ah, so they're like inst- instructive to skeptics. I think they could be. Okay. I think they could be. Yeah. I could see that. There's a lot of combativeness, I feel like, on the left as a whole of like, no, we shouldn't be doing this. No, we shouldn't be doing this. And it's, yeah. it gets very frustrating to navigate. Yeah, you're right. And we shouldn't come across too much as like, don't do this. Like we're saying, do both. You know, this is, I think it's mm-hmm. better. Like you mentioned, harm reduction. Yeah, definitely. It's a nicer way to do things. I did find it interesting that uh, that uh, Papa Marx was talking about this even back in the day. Oh, what'd he say? So I gave the opening address to uh, the first international, the International Working Men's Association. Ooh. Back in, back in 1864, during the Civil War. Okay, he was talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's nuts. So he was kind of praising the cooperative movement. Uh, saying, we speak of the cooperative movement, especially the cooperative factories raised by the unassisted efforts of a few bold hands. The value of these great social experiments cannot be overrated. By deed instead of argument, they have shown that production on a large scale and in accord with the behests of modern science may be carried on without the existence of a class of masters employing a class of hands. You know, blah, 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 that sort of thing. So he's saying, like like you said, it's a good example. Definitely. And I think... I feel similarly about like the utopia kind of project is like, that's still kind of a good talking point. And it's a good example of like, yeah, these things can be done. They have their limitations, but it's a good way to like tell people like, yeah, this could happen. Yes. Yeah. He actually did go on to kind of talk about those limitations too, right? Ooh, after that. Okay. He said at the same time, our recent experiences proved beyond a doubt that however excellent in principle and however useful in practice cooperative labor, if kept within the narrow circle of the casual efforts of private workmen, will never be able to arrest the growth in geometrical progression of monopoly to free the masses, nor even to perceptibly lighten the burden of their miseries. Uh, translation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if it's kept in just the within the overall capitalist system, that narrow circle. Uh, we're not going to be able to stop the growth of monopoly capitalism. We're not going to be able to free the masses. And you can think also the global masses, nor able to kind of ease their burden, especially the global South. And he also said <laughs> kind of, it was interesting who was talking it up at the time. He said, it's perhaps for this very reason that plausible noblemen, philanthropic middle-class spouters, and Uh-oh. even kept political economists have all at once turned nauseously complimentary to the very cooperative labor system they had vainly tried to nip in the bud by deriding it as the utopia of a dreamer or stigmatizing it as the sacrilege of the socialist. Ooh, okay, yeah, that makes me, mm, yeah, that's a very sus group of folks right there. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, why are these guys all of a sudden like it? It's because, like we said, it's not really a threat. It's not a bad thing to do, but if it's kept in its narrow circle, if it's still in capitalism, it's not going to overthrow the system. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with with small businesses. Like, that's not going to change the system either, so. Yeah. I remember early in the discussion I asked, like, is it possible to have a worker-run co-op that is basically a Soviet? But I wanted to ask, is there a difference? Like, what is the difference between a union and a worker-led co-op? So in a, in a normal company, right, uh, you would have the management of the company, and then you would have the, work, the regular wage workers and everything. Mm-hmm. The union would be representing those wage workers. And they and it would be in an antagonistic relationship with management. It would represent the workers and, and hammer out contracts on behalf of the workers to settle, you know, how much they're going to get paid, right? And their conditions and all that. They would not be in control, though, of day-to-day operations. They are like the way that the workers have a say at all, but they're not they're they're not technically in control. If you does that make sense? Yeah, so they're more fighting for the workers in terms of like benefits and pay and all that stuff, but they're not running it. They're not running the company. Right. In a, in, in a standard, uh, the, the way it's standardly set up. Yeah. 
I mean, if you were, <laughs> if you were up to uh, anarcho-syndicalism, actually, then you would have unions running companies too. I mean, like the, you know, the whole workforce would, would, then you'd have both. So then you would have a worker run company and it was, and everyone was in this union together. They just wouldn't have an opponent anymore. They would be deciding things together. And that's not to say a union like can't get involved in those things. Like I imagine things like safety where like, yeah, that is how you run the company. It's like, yeah, can we get better machines so like people's hands don't get cut off or whatever? <laughs> yeah. That probably still comes up. But you're saying that like they're not managing the the day-to-day work in unless they have moved on to anarcho-syndicalism where that's that is kind of then a full worker-run workplace plus union mm-hmm. scenario. Yeah, and I guess it's theoretically possible within capitalism to have like one, you know, to have some business where they're all unionized, but there's not really a a big point to being in the union when you don't have anyone to antagonize. (laughs) It's all worker owned. The reason I think that anarcho-syndicalism ends up with unions is that that's how it got there. So, you know, you started with unions and then the unions drove out the bosses and took power. And so that's just like your governing structure at that point. You know, it's just what it's just what you've used so far, and so it's what you continue with. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and to me, I really like when a, a union gets really broad, too, because it's not just like a union within a company fighting for that specific company. It's like, it's it really gets the idea of like collective action of like, no, we all are fighting for the same thing. That's kind of what's missing, I think, from the co-op piece, is that you're, at the end of the day, still fighting for your little group of people. Yeah, I mean, there's there are federations of cooperatives and things like that, but they, it's it's so, you know, it's so splintered, rare. and like there's there's just not so many. Yeah, it's rare in the United States for sure. It, there's not a lot of uh, aiming to. It's not antagonistic, so it's not like saying, let's take on the power structure so much as like we're doing our little thing, you know. Whereas like, in in terms of you know anarcho-syndicalism and like the old IWW, which is technically still around, but it's not the same caliber now, but that whole movement, the one big union movement that like you were saying, when it gets broad and it tries to organize kind of workers as a class. Yeah. That's a different thing. That, yeah, that was openly saying, let's take on capitalism. Let's take power for ourselves. Let's do a general strike and like overthrow the power and become the power for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> that's my review on on that. Thumbs up. Yeah, I guess I just want to like reiterate that if these sound interesting to you and seem like a good way to do that kind of harm reduction, then like yeah, definitely explore it. I guess like get a lawyer, so like probably get some money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I think the key to that like I said earlier that that big struggle within the leftist movement is is really I feel like it's kind of dialectics at the end of the day is realizing that like yeah, we are trying to make things more comfortable now and we're also pushing for a greater future. And like, that can be really uncomfortable to realize like, yeah, I'm perpetuating harm because I'm part of the capitalist system and imperialism and all this shit. But you have to kind of just accept that and like move on and try to do better. Like there's, (laughs) it sucks. Like it sucks. That's a very good way to put it. Dialectical because it's got elements of both, right? We Mm -hmm. are in a shitty system. We're trying to move to a better system and there is a transitionary there's going to be a transitionary period and there, you know, also just you have, have to survive. To, yeah. You also <laughs> just have to live in that, you know, the efforts to be as pure as you can, just you can do it to whatever extent makes you feel good. It's not going to contribute to the struggle, I guess, overall. I, I feel like maybe you should, or like if you have the means to, I feel like is the important distinction. Cause mm-hmm. I get really frustrated when I see people shaming people over stupid shit where it's like, okay, do you know if that person can afford that? Like, you yeah. know, you know, if you have the means to and the, you know, the ability to and the mental fortitude to <laughs> spend your whole time fretting over that, sure, I guess. But yeah, I'm I'm more interested in like the broader goals. For sure. All right. What are we doing next week? Next week, we'll be opening up the mailbag. Heck yeah. We referenced a lot of listener emails in this episode. So if you were like, hey, I want to do that, then do it. You can email us, you can find us on social, um, and listen to the the stinger of this podcast includes all the ways to contact us online. So do it. 
Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.